0: I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. This week, we want to turn our attention to the words and ideas of peace advocate and Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi. Her story is set in Southeast Asia, a region that includes the nations of Brunei, Myanmar, Cambodia, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. Um, It is the most diverse region of Asia, and it includes hundreds of different cultures and religions, racial makeups, languages. Uh, Just politically, there are nine different kinds of regimes represented in that region of the world, and they range from military juntas like Myanmar um, to monarchies like Brunei to democracies like the Philippines. And Freedom House, uh, which is a non that monitors democracies and indexes freedoms around the world, does not rate a single country in the region as free. Countries such as the Philippines and Indonesia and Malaysia are rated as partly free, but Myanmar and Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam are not. And of course, there are many variables that create barriers to freedom in the region, and each country has its own unique story. This week, we want to explore the story of Myanmar and of a woman who has devoted her life to its survival.
0: Yeah, uh, just to start with, many people know Myanmar by its other name, Burma.
1: Yes, and and that's confusing, but up until 1989, it was called Burma. Uh, but in 1989, the military dictatorship changed the name of the country claiming that it was more historically accurate to call it Myanmar uh, instead of the British-derived colonial Burma. However, there was no public referendum on that, and many people opposed the change, including Aung San Suu Kyi. She, along with many others, continued to refer to the country as Burma. Uh, This is just one indication of the many, many political problems that plague that nation.
0: You know, lots of people don't realize how large the country is. It has over 55 million people, and its natural beauty ranges. There's pristine beaches all the way up to the Himalayan mountains where many tribal groups live sometimes in relative seclusion. I mean, Myanmar has very cool wildlife. There's tigers and leopards and elephants, and it's full of Buddhist temples. In fact, there are thousands of pagodas in Myanmar, earning that country the nickname the Land of Pagodas. Just the ancient Bagan city has over 2,000 that are still standing from the over 10,000 that they've had. Almost any landscape picture of Myanmar will showcase these glittery golden pagodas and they dot the landscape. And it reminds us that the history here is deep and very rich. But before we get too far into the politics or religion, it's important to situate it geographically. Myanmar is bordered by India to the west and by western China, Thailand, and Laos to the east. It's also the largest nation in continental Southeast Asia. Remember, India is considered Southern Asia and China is considered Eastern Asia. So Myanmar is between those two big juggernauts that we think of.
1: Right. Well, not only is Myanmar physically larger, but if you're just assessing natural resources, it's richer. Uh, in fact, it has the most mineral riches of any country in that region of the world. So there you have the advantages, but here are some of the challenges. One is this diversity, which we can think of as a positive thing, but it's also been a huge political problem. Um, There are over 100 different tribes and language groups, and like you said, uh, many of those are living very independent and isolated lives in the Himalayan mountains. Lots of these groups are fiercely independent, and they're heavily armed. And The largest people group in the country, however, is the Bamar people. This group accounts for 68% of the population and is what we generally think of when we think of the Burmese people. Their language, Burmese, is the national language of Myanmar. And before we move on to Aung San Suu Kyi's personal story, I want to point out a couple of other important things about Myanmar that provide important context for this speech. First, Napadao, I don't know how close I came to saying that correctly, is the capital of uh, Myanmar but it is a planned city and it is not the largest city in the country the largest city is yangon or formerly rangoon and yangon is over 7 million people and it's also home to uh, a very important and sacred pagoda the shwedagon pagoda Uh, A pagoda is a sacred building in the Buddhist faith, and this one in particular is not only sacred, but it's also spectacular. Um, It's believed to be 2,500 years old, and it contains relics of four previous Buddhas, and it's extremely tall, uh, 112 meters or 367 feet And uh, that's after already being on a hill. It's gold-plated, and the crown is tipped with over 5,000 diamonds and 2,000 rubies. One of them is said to be over 76 carats. That's slightly bigger than your engagement (laughs) ring. And it's worth over $3 billion. Its bell weighs over 300 tons, and it's considered the largest bell in the world. Sounds like a good place to have an oh Indiana Jones gosh. movie.
0: I mean, it's truly incredible. I mean, we have beauty. We have history. We have human accomplishment. All in one single artifact, that Shweta Dagon is all of that. And it's at the heart of Myanmar history. It's also at the heart of the story of Aung San Suu Chi. So let's talk about this Remarkable woman. Gary, let's go into her backstory.
1: Of course, the story of Aung San Suu Kyi in many ways is inextricably linked to the story of the modern nation of Myanmar. Her father was the famous revolutionary Aung San, and during World War II, General Aung San worked with the Japanese to drive out the British from Burma, who had ruled it since 1885. Under Aung San's leadership, Burma gained nominal independence, but was actually being occupied by the Japanese. Aung San then worked with the British, both to drive out the Japanese, but also to gain a real independence for the Burmese people. Uh, on July 19, 1947, while developing Burma's first constitution, he was brutally assassinated together with his entire cabinet. His daughter, Su Kyi, was two years old at the time. Aung San was revered for his martyrdom, but also for his integrity. No political leader since has come close to his popularity. Um, He's been immortalized in the culture, in the iconography of the nation, and in songs and stories uh, that refer to him as eminent king. And uh, we can think of him as kind of a cross between George Washington or Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, you know, of this emerging nation state. After his assassination, uh, Burma experienced a few years of democratic rule. But in 1962, a military junta seized control. And uh, the military proved to be terrible administrators of the economy, as they usually do. And according to the retired Brigadier General Ji, it turned Burma into a beggar state.
0: Well, by 1988, things were coming to a head. Protests broke out demanding political reform, first from students, but then the protests grew and they included all kinds of people. And these are not just students or peasants, but they consisted in great part of this growing middle class. People were improving their lives and they were demanding more accountability from their leadership. The military, however, would not concede. It used force to stop the protests And although it's difficult to know, obviously, exact numbers, but from August 8 to August 13 of 1988, it's estimated that over 3,000 unarmed civilians were killed by their own military. Two weeks later, on August 26, Aung San Suu Kyi, the daughter of the man who helped create the nation, emerged at a mass rally in front of that beautiful and sacred Shwadagon Pagoda in Yangon. She delivered a powerful speech calling on her people to use nonviolence but to continue to resist. Aung San Suu Kyi with this speech took the reins of leadership that had been so tragically ripped from her father. Nearly 40 years later, Aung San Suu Kyi, daughter of General Aung San, would help organize a new movement and create a new political party. This party would stand for democracy. It would be a party committed to allowing the governed to be ruled by the people. The name of the party is the National League for Democracy, or the NLD. In 1990, Myanmar, for the first time in years, held a free and fair election, and the NLD won over 80% of the votes. But, and this is unfortunate, the military just refused to relinquish power. They were not going to step down and let the people assume power. They placed Tung San Suu under house arrest. She would stay under house arrest really for the most part of the next 40 years in one way or the other. That same year, the one that she was put under house arrest, the European Parliament awarded her the Sakharov Prize for Freedom of Thought. The speech that we're going to analyze today is called Freedom from Fear. It helped define for her people, but it also helped define for the rest of the world what freedom means.
1: And she defines it differently uh, than Patrick Henry did in his Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech or or others who have sought to uh, express this concept from a Western tradition She defines resistance. She conceives of a way regular people can fight overwhelming force, such as in this case, in many places, but also including Myanmar. Um, Her understanding of courage is informed by her Buddhist roots, by her time in India, um, her Western education, um, but also her vantage point as a female leader. She really exposes the ugly truth that a tyrant's ability to rule and control us requires our participation, which the tyrant can get through our own fear and willingness to be corrupt. Corruption is how a tyrant rules, and it is in this, our corruption, that we empower tyrants to keep us in bondage. That's an interesting perspective.
0: Well, it is, and it's really not an easy idea to grasp. But once a person understands it, it's even harder to live by this kind of ideal, mostly because if you choose to live a life free from corruption and a corrupt system, you're just putting a target on your back. And we'll see this as exemplified in her personal story.
1: Well. Aung San Suu Kyi, as you mentioned, um, after the military took control, was confined to the house that the government gave her mother after her father was murdered, and she remained in it under house arrest for 15 straight years. And the house is at uh, 5456 University Avenue, and it's located on Yangon's Inya Lake, um, ironically in the same neighborhood as many of the generals live in, uh, who keep her there against her will. They can see her house from their homes, as can many others. And uh, for the years she lived in the house, she kept a light on in one of the rooms that she has never turned off. And she did that for an important symbolic reason that we can understand as we read her speech. And in fact, the house itself has become an emblem for freedom. Uh With her life, as with her house, she wants to shine a light on a path to freedom, both political and personal. And and her call to fearlessness can be seen in this light.
0: Well, and her life is a call to freedom. But the choice to be free is an act of courage in big ways and also in small ways. And she explains this to the world in her speech, Freedom from Fear. So let's read those very famous first two sentences.
1: It is not power that corrupts, but fear. Fear of losing power corrupts those who wield it, and fear of the scourge of power corrupts those who are subject to it.
0: So let's stop there. For Aung San Suu Kyi, everything begins and ends with fear. The equation really is simple. Fear destroys power by corruption, both in the oppressor as well as in the oppressed. So this first assertion will ground her speech from beginning to end. She identifies a link between power, fear, and corruption. This is from the top to the bottom, but also from the bottom to the top.
1: Uh, the, the Bamar people, of course, are Buddhist, and Aung San Su Chi's beliefs and actions are grounded in Buddhist teaching. Uh, she uses this to give us a Buddhist understanding of this um, essential connection between fear and corruption. In Buddhism, the right path is a spiritual discipline that leads to enlightenment and the end of suffering. and you know that makes sense. This is straightforward, and obviously we all should want to live on that right path. But most of us want enlightenment for ourselves, and we want to end suffering, at least for ourselves, but hopefully for other people too. Uh, but what is the opposite of the right path? This is Aung Su Chi's starting point. Agati essentially means you're on the wrong path. And she starts her discussion of corruption, referencing what all Buddhists understand – Uh, As there is a right path and there is a wrong one, and the wrong one does not lead to enlightenment and the end of suffering. It leads the opposite direction. It leads to darkness and chaos and suffering. So let's read what she says about corruption and the wrong path.
0: Most Burmese are familiar with the four agati, the four kinds of corruption— Chandagati, corruption, corruption induced by desire, is deviation from the right path in pursuit of bribes or for the sake of those one loves. Dosagati is taking the wrong path to spite those against whom one bears ill will. And Mogagati is aberration due to ignorance. But perhaps the worst of the four is gati, And not only does Bay fear stifle and slowly destroy all sense of right and wrong... It so often lies at the root of the other three kinds of corruption. Just as chanda-gati, when not the result of sheer avarice, can be caused by fear of want or fear of losing the goodwill of those one loves, so fear of being surpassed, humiliated, or injured in some way can provide the impetus for ill will, and it would be difficult to dispel ignorance unless there is freedom to pursue the truth unfettered by fear." With so close a relationship between fear and corruption, it is little wonder that in any society where fear is rife, corruption in all forms becomes deeply entrenched. Of course, from there she connects this idea of corruption with the student demonstrations that she was a part of and where so many of her countrymen were killed by their own government. Those who killed the protesters were not on the right path. Instead, They were neck deep in corruption. Let's read her words.
1: Public dissatisfaction with economic hardships has been seen as the chief cause of the movement for democracy in Burma, sparked off by the student demonstrations in 1988. It is true that years of incoherent policies, inept official measures, burgeoning inflation, and falling real income had turned the country into an economic shambles but it was more than the difficulties of eking out a barely acceptable standard of living that had eroded the patience of a traditionally good-natured, quiescent people. It was also the humiliation of a way of life disfigured by corruption and fear. The students were protesting not just against the death of their comrades, but against the denial of their right to life by a totalitarian regime which deprived the present of meaningfulness and held out no hope for the future. And because the students' protest articulated the frustrations of the people at large, the demonstrations quickly grew into a nationwide movement. Some of its keenest supporters were businessmen who had developed the skills and the contacts necessary not only to survive but to prosper within the system— But their affluence offered them no genuine sense of security or fulfillment, and they could not but see that if they and their fellow citizens, regardless of economic status, were to achieve a worthwhile existence, an accountable administration was at least a necessary, if not a sufficient, condition. The people of Burma had wearied of a precarious state of passive apprehension where they were as water in the cupped hands of the powers that be."
0: You know, after explaining the cause of the protest, she references that traditional Burmese poem, but the metaphor she makes to the political situation is her own, and it might seem kind of shocking given its Buddhist context, but let's read the poem. Emerald cool we may be as water cupped hands, but oh, that we might be as splinters of glass in cupped hands. So what's she calling people to be? Well, she's juxtaposing the coolness of water with the viciousness of splinters of glass. Now, what's that picture? It's water that's cool, that's nice, but it has an edge, an edge that injures, but it's also an edge that's collected. It's not one single piece of glass. It's splinters and cupped hands, and those are the cupped hands that is trying to hold on to it. This is not a call to violence. But it's a call to something that will cut and hopefully force open the hand that holds it. She is calling for action because action changes things. It can even cut. But this image of splintered glass, she alludes to a well-known man of action, her father, a man that she never got to know because his response to a call to change Myanmar for the better cost him his life. Glass splinters, the smallest with its sharp, glittering power to defend itself against hands that try to crush, could be seen as a vivid symbol of the spark of courage that is an essential attribute of those who would free themselves from the grip of oppression. Bogati Aung regarded himself as a revolution and s- revolutionary and searched tirelessly for answers to the problems that beset Burma during his time of trial. He exhorted the people to develop courage. Don't just depend on the courage and intrepidity of others. Each and every one of you must make sacrifices to become a hero, possessed of courage and intrepidity. Then only shall we be able to enjoy true freedom. The effort necessary to remain uncorrupted in an environment where fear is an integral part of everyday existence is not immediately apparent to those fortunate enough to live in a state governed by the rule of law. Just laws do not merely prevent corruption by meting out impartial punishment to offenders. They also help to create a society in which people can fulfill the basic requirements for the preservation of human dignity without recourse to corrupt practices. Where there are no such laws, the burden of upholding principles of justice and common decency falls to the ordinary people. It is the cumulative effect on their sustained effort and steady endurance which will change a nation, where reason and conscience are warped by fear into one where legal rules exist to promote man's desire for harmony and justice while restraining the less desirable destructive traits in his nature."
1: You know, uh, we should point out that uh, in the West and the Western political tradition, uh, one of the most important rules is the rule of law. Uh, and we just assume that laws are designed to be just. And of course, that hasn't always been true in practice, um, and injustices have occurred and occur all the time. But in principle, uh, our concept of law is that we that we struggle for, and, and we try to make laws just. And when they're not, we we fight to improve them, um, or when just laws are not enforced, we move to enforce them. And. You know, that's exactly what Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement was about um, the development and enforcement of just laws. And it's what most political movements in democracies uh, working towards a society, you know, they work at making laws more fair and executing the ones that we have in fair ways. But what if laws were not designed to be just at all? Uh, what if you lived in a place where laws were arbitrary? And those in charge did whatever they wanted, you know, manipulating voices and crushing public debate. Uh, What if the government was not elected and had no kind of transparent standard of ethics outside of itself? Um, If that is your political reality, which it is for many people today uh, all around the world, what is any one single individual to do? How do you avoid a sense of hopelessness? And you know, this is the reality that Ansan Su Chi speaks to when she's talking to us.
0: Right. And what most people do in this situation, and what at first seems most reasonable to do for every man and woman is just to take care of his or herself. And if necessarily, as it most necessarily will be, you should cheat, lie, and steal to benefit yourself. <laughs>
1: you know, Aung Su Suu Kyi sees this as living a life driven by fear. And uh, for her, this fear is what drives us into patterns of personal and then into collective corruption. You know, in other words, we carry this attitude that if someone is going to steal from me, then I better steal from the next person. Um, I can't trust the law to defend me. So I must take what I can when I can. So what she sees as she looks to the corruption around here is that every man or woman practicing corruption is living a life driven and led by fear. This is the wrong path because fear, if unchecked, will lead to corruption. And for Aung San Suu Kyi, this doesn't end well. You know, perhaps the corrupt person might survive, but the society will not. And that is a very deep concept to try to understand.
0: Well, well it is. Uh, and Sang Su she draws for us a path forward. It's a difficult path. It's a hard path. But it's a path to enlightenment. And it's a path that releases suffering. Let's listen to her words.
1: In an age when immense technological advances have created lethal weapons, which could be and are, used by the powerful and the unprincipled to dominate the weak and the helpless, there is a compelling need for a closer relationship between politics and ethics at both the national and international levels. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations proclaims that every individual and every organ of society should strive to promote the basic rights and freedoms to which all human beings regardless of race, nationality, or religion, are entitled. But as long as there are governments whose authority is founded on coercion rather than on the mandate of the people, and interest groups which place short-term profits above long-term peace and prosperity, concerted international action to protect and promote human rights, will remain, at best, a partially realized struggle. There will continue to be arenas of struggle where victims of oppression have to draw on their own inner resources to defend their inalienable rights as members of the human family. The quintessential revolution is that of the spirit, born of an intellectual conviction of the need for change in those mental attitudes and values which shape the course of a nation's development. A revolution which aims merely at changing official policies and institutions with a view to an improvement in material conditions has little chance of genuine success, Without a revolution of the spirit, the forces which produce the iniquities of the old order would continue to be operative, posing a constant threat to the process of reform and regeneration. It's not enough merely to call for freedom, democracy, and human rights. There has to be a united determination to persevere in the struggle, to make sacrifices in the name of enduring truths, to resist the corrupting influences of desire and ill will. Ignorance and fear. Saints, it has been said, are the sinners who go on trying. So, free men are the oppressed who go on trying and who, in the process, make themselves fit to bear the responsibilities and uphold the disciplines which will maintain a free society. Among the basic freedoms to which men aspire that their lives might be full and uncramped, freedom from fear stands out as both a, ma- a means and an end. A people who would build a nation in which strong democratic institutions are firmly established as a guarantee against state-induced power must first learn to liberate their own minds from apathy and fear.
0: You know, she calls for what she calls a revolution of the spirit. I mean, it's a wonderful phrase, but what it essentially means is that every man has the power to not participate in corruption. You don't have to steal. You don't have to be on the take. You don't have to be corrupt. But essentially, this is going to cost you. And it will call for a fearlessness of spirit, which is different than the courage of beating a person or shooting a person with a gun. She references Mother Teresa of Calcutta when she quotes that famous line, Saints are the sinners who go on trying. In other words, if you've been corrupt in the past, just stop. It's the act of a saint to free oneself of corruption. It's that internal corruption that is so hard to root out.
1: Always one to practice what he preached, Aung San himself constantly demonstrated courage, not just the physical sort, but the kind that enabled him to speak the truth, to stand by his word, to accept criticism, to admit his faults, to correct his mistakes— to respect the opposition, to parley with the enemy, and to let people be the judge of his worthiness as a leader. It is for such moral courage that he will always be loved and respected in Burma, not merely as a warrior hero, but as the inspiration and conscience of the nation. The words used by Jaral Nehru to describe Mahatma Gandhi could well be applied to Aung San. The essence of his teaching was fearlessness and truth and action, allied to these, always keeping the welfare of the masses in view. Gandhi, that great apostle of nonviolence and Aung San, the founder of a national army, were very different personalities. But as there is an inevitable sameness about the challenges of authoritarian rule anywhere at any time, so there is a similarity in the intrinsic qualities of those who rise up to meet the challenge Nehru, who considered the installation of courage in the people of India, one of Gandhi's greatest achievements, was a political modernist, but as he assessed the needs for a 20th century movement for independence, he found himself looking back to the philosophy of ancient India. The greatest gift for an individual or a nation was abhaya, or fearlessness, not merely bodily courage, but absence of fear from the mind."
0: And of course, although the word saint is a Christian reference, the two men she references there and who lived and indeed were martyred for this code were not Christian. Her father, a Buddhist, Mahatma Gandhi, a Hindu, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, all three embody this incorruptible spirit of fearlessness. And it is fearlessness that links her father with Jawaharlal Nehru and, and fellow countryman Mahatma Gandhi. Her father was a general. The other two were nonviolent protesters in India. Both her father and Gandhi were martyred precisely because they would not yield to corruption. They embodied Mother Teresa's vision of sainthood, the incorruptible spirit of fearlessness that acts and defies the corruption instead of joining in on the take.
1: It's an interesting point. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi has been criticized even by many uh, who claim that we should allow karma to take its course or take care of the future. You know, there are peace advocates who disagree with her saying that it's not right to uprise. It causes evil. Uh, but Aung San Suu Kyi responds to that. And in fact, she disagrees with that notion completely. And, you know, I want to read a quote from a later speech of hers. A lot of Buddhists think that because the authorities are cruel and unjust, you don't have to do anything at all. They will get their own desserts. I don't accept that. I don't think that one should just sit back and expect karma to catch up with everybody else. Both work and action come down to karma. Action and doing. And of course, self-reliance is very Buddhist. We say, Atahia tanunato." In the end, we only have ourselves to rely on. Or like an American spin on that? no one is coming (laughs) i remind the people that karma is actually doing it's not just sitting back some people think of karma as destiny or fate and that there's nothing they can do about it it's simply what is going to happen because of their past deeds this is the way in which karma is often interpreted in burma but karma is not that at all it's doing its action so you are creating your own karma all the time Buddhism is a very dynamic philosophy, and it's a great pity that some people forget that aspect of our religion. If something goes wrong, people tend to do something just for themselves, as it were. But I think you can also carry on working for others. Perhaps we should encourage this more, the idea that you can gain a lot of merit by working for others, as much as by working for yourself. In fact, I would like more of our Burmese Buddhists to understand this point.
0: Fearlessness. May be a gift, but perhaps more precious is the courage acquired through endeavor. Courage that comes from cultivating the habit of refusing to let fear dictate one's actions. Courage that be described as grace under pressure. Grace which is renewed repeatedly in the face of harsh, unremitting pressure. Within a system which denies the existence of basic human rights, fear tends to be the order of the day. Fear of imprisonment, fear of torture, fear of death, fear of losing friends, family, property, or means of livelihood, fear of poverty, fear of isolation, fear of failure. A most insidious form of fear is that which masquerades as common sense or even wisdom, condemning as foolish, reckless, insignificant, or futile. The small daily acts of courage would help to preserve man's self-respect and inherent human dignity. It is not easy for a people conditioned by fear under the iron rule of the principle that might is right to free themselves from the enervating miasmas of fear. Yet even under the most crushing state machinery, courage rises up again and again, for fear is not the natural state of civilized man. Throughout her entire career, she never turned from trying to give convince people to get rid of fear. In 1989, in another speech, she said this, Where people are daring to be politically active, they enjoy more rights. Where people are fearful, however, they suffer more oppression. Because of this, if we want democracy, we need to show courage. By this, I don't mean courage to cause trouble. I must often remind people of that. By courage, I mean the courage to do what one knows is right, even if one is afraid. We should do what we believe is right, even if we are afraid. Of course we cannot help being afraid. We just have to work to control our fear.
1: The wellspring of courage and endurance in the face of unbridled power is generally a firm belief in the sanctity of ethical principles combined with a historical sense that despite all setbacks, the condition of man is set on an ultimate course for both spiritual and material advancement. It is his capacity for self-improvement and self-redemption which most distinguishes man from the mere brute. At the root of human responsibility is the concept of perfection. The urge to achieve it, the intelligence to find a path towards it, and a will to follow that path, if not to the end, at least the distance needed to rise above individual limitations and environmental impediments. It is its main vision of a world fit for rational, civilized humanity, which leads him to dare and to suffer to build societies free from want and fear. Concepts such as truth, justice, and compassion cannot be dismissed as trite, when these are often the only bulwarks which stand against ruthless power.
0: You know, I want to repeat that line because you read it and I find it so powerful. It is his capacity for self-improvement and self-redemption, which most distinguishes man from mere brute. At the root of human responsibility is the concept of perfection, the urge to achieve it, and the intelligence to find a path towards it, and the will to follow that path. I mean, these are powerful words. The only path forward is one of total and uncompromising integrity. This ruthless willingness to not lie, to not cheat, to not be pushed by the powerful who make you less of a man and more of a brute. It's a powerful concept. How do we fight man's inhumanity to man? Well, her answer is so simple, by not giving up our humanity to corruption.
1: And, of course, her closing line as she looks forward is just as powerful. I mean, concepts such as um, truth and justice and compassion cannot be dismissed as trite when these are often the only bulwarks which stand against ruthless power pretty bold claim
0: well and she should know in december of 2022 ang san was convicted of incitement corruption illegal possession of walkie-talkies and breaking covid restrictions she was sentenced to 33 years in prison World observers have called her trial a farce and a demonstration of corruption. It was held in secret with evidence that has been called fabricated. Everyone who participated in her wrongful incarceration surrendered to ruthless power, saving themselves but participating in corruption. The government of Myanmar has locked Aung San Suu Kyi in solitary confinement for the rest of her life. In some ways, it's understandable. It's perhaps natural. Every individual wants to survive. Leaders want to hold on to power at all costs. But isn't it inspiring to see that every once in a while, someone emerges who really is fearless, a saint who says no to corruption. In this case, it will likely cost Aung San Suu Kyi her life. But I hope she knows that for many who read her words and hear her message, it is not a life in vain. Her light, although it may not be shining anymore in her house upon that lake, shines across the world through the power of her words.
1: Yes, and may they live for many generations to come as a call to a fearless devotion to truth and the right paths, one to enlightenment and freedom from suffering. Thank you for listening. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed this discussion on one of our world's heroes. Uh, May none of us forget the people of Myanmar and Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, As always, please share this episode with a friend. Text them an episode, a link, send a link in an email, social media by word of mouth. Remember, uh, we have listening guides for all of our episodes on our website, free of charge, as well as other educational goodies, including how to love it merchandise for purchase. <laughs> Thank you for supporting the podcast.
0: Peace out.